Hi, I'm Chris Waddell. Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to One Revolution's Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today we are super lucky we have Oksana Masters with us. She has done just about everything from rowing to hand cycling to cross country to biathlon. For those of you who don't know, that is basically cross country, but then you have to shoot and get your heart rate from 180 down to something that is actually going to let you keep the gun pointed in the right direction. Eight Paralympic medals and was also was out there in the world championships and was totally crushing it in the, in the world championships. We will talk about this at some point. Broke her elbow or dislocated her elbow? I've read in a variety of different places, different things, and then actually went on to win medals in Pyeongchang with an elbow that was either broken or dislocated. Oksana, one of the things that's so cool, this is with name tags, our motto is it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. And so I've seen you say that in interviews, I mean, almost verbatim. So what does that saying mean to you? It's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. I love that your motto is the same thing because that's what I love to live life by as well. And for me, it's like not being defined of what happens to you or the experiences you go through. They're meant to, for you to learn to be a better person and push yourself and not live in those moments and let that be what defines you and how you view yourself and the image you put out to the world for them to view you as. Is that, is that something that you have to talk to yourself about? Is there some self-talk with this where, I mean, cause you were in an orphanage in the Ukraine for seven and a half years. And actually from the time you were five until you were seven and a half, you, you had effectively a mother. You had a mother who was going to adopt you, but Ukraine had shut down the adoptions. And so you went two and a half years with them telling you, well, you're not going to get adopted because you've been a bad girl and this kind of stuff. And so, so it's not just, I mean, it's not just a fluff kind of statement, right? For you, this is something that you've had to live. And do you have to talk to yourself? Do you have to remind yourself of like, okay, it is, it's not what happens to me. It's what I do with what, what happens to me. How can you go forward with that? I think that's a really interesting um, question. And I think it's honestly like we're human. We're going to fall into that track of sometimes letting it like getting let that into your head. But, and it's for me, it's different. It's, it's, there's two aspects that I think makes it challenging. So for me, I let my prosthetics, it took a while for me to kind of not hold a grudge to having uh, being born with so many deformities, not just my legs, but also my hands, something that you cannot hide at all. And it was really hard. And sports was kind of that outlet for me that allowed me to view like not, it's not my amputations. It's not, even though society sees me as someone with a disability, I don't, and I'm still going to go out and be an athlete. What I struggle with and honesty, I, and honestly, I do struggle is sometimes um, more of my personal story of being in the orphanage 
it's so, for me, it took such a long time to share my story because I had to be okay with myself and love every part of it that I didn't allow myself to do and kind of hid that through sports and let sport be my therapy. And now, um, you know, sometimes I'm just like, I realized that it's not, I had no control over what happens. And that's the biggest thing, especially as a little girl, um, going from what was normal to all of a sudden you realize all the things that have been done to you, you experience are not normal things. That transition was hard. And then it's, then that's why I want to share my experiences and shine a light in some parts that people want to look away from and not realize that it is reality for a lot of kids in orphanages and um, let that be a message and hopefully an image of something of like, this happens, but this is not who I am and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to find the power within this that's going to propel me to be the best person that I can be. And it's kind of it's, how I've learned to cope with all that. It's an interesting one, right? Because the action of sport is really easy, right? That you go, okay, well, this is what I have to do. It's A, B, C, and let's see how fast I can go kind of thing. Whereas the other stuff, the emotional stuff, the, the trust, the forgiveness, the, forgive, the forgiveness of yourself, where you are, you're just a little kid, but in some ways it gets to be really hard to give yourself that permission. Because sometimes there's this sense of, there's the way we see ourselves, there's the way that other people see us. And then there's the way that we perceive that other people see us and, and trying to wrap our mind around the whole thing. How was getting into the trust part? How was, how was getting into the forgiveness and, and realizing that you can create a new world? Was that a, was that a challenge for you? It was such a challenge, honestly, and it still kind of is. I'm still learning. I'm still realizing there's so many parts and layers to my story I never really fully allowed myself to heal from and kind of let it out and then then this like weight and burden and pit in your stomach that might be grounding you is just allowing you to kind of if you want to get it out you can fully not focus on that but yeah it was it was uh, a struggle but for me the way I found release and all that was through sport. I, it was a way where I was not ready to verbalize anything. And by verbalizing, it made it real. And I didn't want to believe that things were real and that it happened and it was my life. And, you know, honestly, Chris, like it was hard because when I got into the Paralympics and people found that I was adopted and they're like, oh, there's so many Paralympians that have the same story as you. And through like some events and stuff, I knew some of the athletes, but I also knew their stories were very different from mine and I wasn't ready to share that, but they were in places where they were. And so it was hard to kind of being connected in ways that I didn't know how to verbalize. And I did that by allowing my body just to kind of race hard and train hard and did it that way. <laughs> did all the talking for you. Your body did yeah. all the talking. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit, because your, your mother was, was the one who, in a lot of ways, was, gave you this new life, right? And 
how did how did that work? I've read a little bit about this, and I don't know if it's all true what I've read or not. But how did how did it work? How did she get connected to to you? How did she find you? And and then how did you eventually get adopted? Um, my mom is an incredible woman. She when she knew she wanted to adopt, but she also knew she didn't want to adopt a seven year old with an opinion and thought she had the world figured out like I did. <laughs> and it was a rude awakening. I think when she met me and <laughs> she was like, Oh boy. But she uh, found out about me right before my fifth birthday through a picture that was in this adoption agency kind of newsletter that somebody at work, she went through, she worked with, she found out that they adopted and she wanted to pick their brain. Long story short, she started the process to adopt me and she never came to ukraine to see me she's just basing adopting me on a picture a black and white grainy picture and that's it when everything starts moving i get a picture the director of the orphanage calls me in and he's like oksana i want to tell you something and show you something and it's a picture of what my soon-to-be mom was and it's like her passport small little passport picture and so you're going to get a mom and I was so excited, but at the same time, I was, this is something that I've heard a lot. And I heard families come and say, we're gonna be like your new mom and dad. And um, then, then they would, for whatever reason, never come back. So I learned not to latch on really to that, work, to that sentence, but something about looking at my mom's picture and seeing her smile was so different. And I just knew in my gut, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is her, this is it. And it took two years and what to adopt because like you said, Ukraine closed the adoption agency adoptions on all foreign adoptions. And um, I ended up when it took two years for the ban to lift and I was the, the first American, well, first adopted kid from Ukraine from, by American woman after that ban lifted. And I'm just so lucky because two things like my mom, she didn't know I knew of her and I was looking at her picture every single day and would ask to look at her picture every single day. And I also, during that time, they were trying to tell her that the two year ban was going on. The adoption agency was trying to tell my mom, just go to Russia, you can get a baby and you can get a baby within two weeks. You don't, we don't know when this ban's gonna lift. Like, she might not make it by then or whatever. And she said, no, this is my daughter. I'm going to wait until this opens and I'm going to come and get her. And she did. And she did it all single parent. She wasn't married. So she supported me and did this all by herself, except the journey to Ukraine. She did it with my aunt Sherry. She said it was something in your eyes, right? I mean, you said that you know, <laughs> it was her smile. And she said it was something in your eyes. And there was this connection through photographs which is which yeah. is so hard but she said yes this is the one and she waited two years and then and then how did it did she come over and get you or how did how, how did that work they didn't just put you on a plane <laughs> yeah so she um she flew to ukraine and we were there i think maybe for about a month um, during that whole process during that time she had to redo all her paperwork because 
the Ukraine wouldn't accept it because some things were translated in Russian and I was West enough in Ukraine where they wouldn't allow that at all. And so she, it was so many moving parts and trial and error. Um, and yeah, she got the tour of the orphanage. She woke me up that night that they said my mom was coming finally. Um, they said that they would, she was coming that night before we were gonna go to bed. But then all of a sudden it was nighttime and she wasn't there. There were some plane delays and things were happening. I didn't know that, but I put up this huge hissy fit. Like I'm known, like as a kid in orphanage, I was very much of a troublemaker and just really thought I had the world figured out, which got me into a lot of trouble. <laughs> I never learned. <laughs> um, but I think in some ways that's like just that resiliency you needed to survive in that environment as well as a kid. But so then finally I went to bed and then around 11 o'clock at night, I was woken up and it was a director of the orphanage, a translator, my mom and my aunt Sherry were there. And they asked, Oksana, do you know who this is? And I said, it's all in Ukrainian, which I don't unfortunately speak anymore. And I was like, I know you, you're my mom. I have your picture. And then she was like, I know you, you're my daughter. And it's just one of those in the moment things that you say that you, except she said it in um, English and then was translated back into Ukrainian for me. Um, and my whole world changed after that. Did you believe when you went to sleep that night, did you think, well, this is this whole thing happening again, that they've promised to me that it's going to happen and then it doesn't happen. Like, did you still believe that, that she was going to come or, or did you think that it was just, the same old, same old. A part of me knew she was coming, but a part of me feared she wasn't because I thought if they told me she was coming tonight and she didn't and I went to sleep, I was afraid that day would end and she would never be there. And I just, that's I think why I was fighting to go to sleep. I wanted to see it. I didn't want that day to end. I was promised that day. And you, I, I held on to that picture. I looked at her picture every single day. I created this life with my mom in my head and in my dreams for two years. I did not want to go to sleep because I thought that it would be the end of that. And um, yeah, so it's just, I think that's why I was probably giving them all a hard time. Wow. How did the life that you had imagined match with the life that then you lived? Because it was so different were you drawing from like movies or television or something like that to create this alternative life or what were they like did, did they match up or not uh, match up to like what now is or no yeah so like so you were in the orphanage and you had this idea of what your life would be like and then you leave the orphanage you hop on a plane and you enter your new life what you imagined was it was it no did it match up with reality i well so the one thing is i knew i was getting a mom but i never really fully understood i was gonna have to leave ukraine i thought she was gonna come there and we're gonna live there together in that building <laughs> and that's how it was gonna work and i so i didn't really grasp that idea i and then when she said we're gonna have to cry, fly across the ocean to go home I was terrified of the ocean. I did not want to go. I did not think planes like could fly. I mean, I the village that I lived in, there were no cars. There were only horse and wagons until like 
the idea of flying to me terrified me and just could not comprehend it. And I didn't have TV to watch, so I didn't know what it looked like. Um, so it was just terrifying. Had you seen the ocean? No. Before? No. I, no, I just knew that just from what the other kids told me because my orphanage was, they, they called it a boarding school because a lot of kids within that community would go there and their parents would basically pay the government and they would just get their school there, they would live there, but then on holidays, they would be able to go home to their families. And when that happened, there were only seven orphans, seven kids who did not have, like were legitimately orphans, didn't have families to go home to. You flew and you, you lived in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. What, what was that like? What was, I mean, it's gotta be such a change from the orphanage and- Color and light and everything because my orphanage was not lit that well. It was super dark. It was very Soviet-esque-like and cement walls. And um, there would be like rugs hanging on the wall or rugs on the floor, but there was no toys at all. And it, I, I always explain to people, it was like Annie and coming home with Daddy Warbox and she's just like, <gasps> looking at this chandelier. And then I was just talking to somebody except like my chandelier was the fluorescent lights of Walmart because when we got to America, <laughs> we both couldn't sleep because of that time change. And I was just so wired and awake. And um, that was my first experience of America in Buffalo, New York. And that was my first time I saw food that was just out there that wasn't being guarded by people. And it was unlimited amount and color and toys. And my mom had to tell me that I couldn't just go and like eat things and pick it and eat things and try on things or do things. I get to pay for it. Um, it was wild. And my mom and I didn't speak each other's language. So it was a whole lot of communication and head nodding. Sometimes it was right. Sometimes it was not right. Wow. How long did it take you to learn English? Did you pick it up relatively quickly? I heard something about Scooby-Doo, so I don't know if that... Um, yes, cartoons are incredible. You pick up so much. And I think kids are just so, like, they're sponges. They absorb everything. And I think that was, for me, I was saying things that a dog said <laughs> that a person didn't say. I didn't understand it because he was talking, so I couldn't make that, like, reference at all. But um like i literally i chris i thought i was gonna marry scooby-doo i loved him like i wanted him so bad to just hug him through the tv but yes so a lot of tv and cartoons and my mom said it took around six months for me to pick up english so it's kind of weird so like i went into surgery for teeth because i had five abscesses and they took them out and my mom was like could you understand her okay and they're like yeah why well, she doesn't speak any English. And I'm like, what? And it like literally came out like somehow speaking English somehow. It's, I don't, I don't From know. having your teeth operated on. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's just the timing of it was, or I don't know. It was something you needed to be able to communicate. So it, somehow you were able to do it. I don't That is wild. And so, so then you went to school, right? You were going to school when you were at the orphanage, but then you went to school to an American school but you went to an American school without being able to speak English. The school was so different. So like 
when I, my mom was going to wait a year for me to learn the language, kind of attach to her and understand everything and um, kind of give time for all the medical needs that were needing to be done. But then I was like, I want to go to school. I want to go to school. Okay. The school that I went to in Ukraine for two years, it was one or two hours a day and that's it. And like, you weren't really being taught anything and you were just kind of like, they had things, but like, they weren't really teaching you things. So it was more like a social hour in a way. <laughs> and when I went to school in the US, it's seven hours, six or seven hours. It's so long. And I'm like, and then I had a translator and my mom, when I come home, she's like, well, how was it? And I was not happy because the translator was speaking Russian to me and not Ukrainian. And I was like, oh, the babushka speaks Peruski or whatever. And I'm just like, I was not happy about that at all. And, um, and yeah, it was a unique experience going to school with a translator and starting over because I should have been in third grade, but I started over. So I was very old for my age too in within those grades. Did you, were you able to make friends? How did, how did that work out? I mean, that's gotta be hard with the language barrier, with, with a cultural barrier. It was not hard for me to make friends at all. People were super curious, I think. And I think it's the beauty about kids and that childhood is like, you're just so curious and you literally walk up, hey, you wanna play? Yeah. And like when you're an adult, it's a lot harder to make lifelong friends and those connections. And so I had no trouble making friends in Ukraine or in uh, America, even though I was speaking Ukrainian, there was a translator. The second year I was able to fully understand. There were some like words where I would mix in with, but I think the kids, then they were asking like, why do you have an accent? Why do you sound funny when you talk? And then I wanted to get everything about Ukraine and get rid of it to try and fit in and be like them. This was prior to your amputations as well, right? Yeah. So what was the, why did they need to amputate your legs? No weight bearing? Is that what it was? Weight bearing bones? Yeah, I was missing the main weight bearing bones and the knee wasn't a true knee. It was just floating. It didn't have like the quad muscles to connect everything. And my feet were just so deformed. Um, yeah, so basically, if you look at an x-ray, it looked like a salt and sh pepper shaker was just like randomly sporadically on my bone, and that was the bone. One leg was straight-ish, and the other one was about like six inches shorter, and I just could not walk on it. And the way I taught myself how to walk in Ukraine to keep up with the kids, I ended up blowing out my knee on the right side, which ultimately led to the amputation later on. The first one was when I was nine, my mom wanted to wait, like, um, she didn't want to just adopt me, take me from what used to be my home and not speak any English. And then all of a sudden take a leg. She thought that would be kind of cruel. <laughs> and she made a really good point. Like she's incredible for thinking about it that way. <laughs> yes, yes. I can't imagine how, how brutal that would be to her. To, okay, yeah, come here. You don't understand me. We're going to bring you to the hospital and you're going to come back with missing a leg. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I understand how she might be able to do that. In Ukraine, they said there, I was just going to get a new leg. I was going to get new legs. And so I thought I was just literally going to get new real legs, just different, but prettier and normal and not painful. So it was like a whole lot of learning. 
but that has changed now, right? I mean, that's changed. So, so you had one leg amputated, then you had the, then, then you started to row, right? You started to row before your second amputation. Is that how it worked? Yeah. Rowing was my, my escape. It was my, I, I latched onto that. I didn't want to at first. I did. I, somebody was like, you should go try adapted rowing. And I hated that it was called adapted rowing just because I was missing a leg. I wanted to do play volleyball at school with my friends, like my normal friends, not like have a special, like a, cat, a sport for me to do just because of that. So, but what was, what was the feeling? What was the feeling of, of, of rowing? Cause had you done other sports prior to this? I'd imagine you, you'd done a few things. Ish. Like I was always active. I ice skated and I did horseback riding. Cause when we moved from Buffalo, New York to Louisville, Kentucky, my mom's like, well, you know what they have to, what you have to do now that you live in Kentucky, you have to ride horses. That's what they, and I was like, really? That was her way to kind of, I was 13 and I was like, it's the end of the world. We're going to the country. There's nothing in Kentucky. And so that's, what she, that's the way she like kind of smoothed it out a little bit. Um, and yeah, when I, I was so reluctant to try rowing, I was so reluctant to take off my prosthetic leg in front of people. I was just still not comfortable with that. But the minute I got on the water and just felt the water underneath me, it felt like it was something you feel like you're kind of a little like you have no control. But for me, I felt like it was the first time I had control. I'm in this boat where I controlled what happens and how I move and where I go. And the best part, I don't know if you ever had a chance to row, but it's just on the oars, you just like stand out and you pull so hard and then you have to be calm and relax again and, and just do it. And it was a physical release. I could just feel I was getting lighter and lighter. And it was just like, I've never felt like I belong somewhere more in my life than in that boat in that moment. Is it, is it a sense of efficiency too? I mean, with, with some of the, with some of the birth defects, right. That, that you, you did your best to keep up yeah. with everybody to the point that you blew out your knee. You were like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do, but it was, it had to be hard. And then was it getting into this boat? Cause just in reading what you were talking about, it, it to me, that's what it sounded like was this, this release of like, Oh, okay. Now the energy I'm putting into this, is actually translating into mm. into speed and beauty and all of this stuff. Is, is that the way it felt or is that, am I reading too much into it? No, I mean, yeah, I, I didn't know speed. I didn't know efficiency. I, it was by no means a good rower or pretty rower at that time. I, my problem as an athlete is I get in, I just try to hammer something too hard, too fast, and it's not cute and I break something. But I think it was more just, um, I've always loved water, but I feel like water is super therapeutic somehow. And it was just the internal feeling I got when I yanked on those oars as hard as I could. And then you felt so light and still moving forward, like, well, actually technically backwards, but you could see the ripples of the boat and everything. And it very quickly transitioned to speed for sure. Cause I'm very competitive by nature. Right. I've <laughs> gathered that. Yes. <laughs> now I, I have to ask this follow-up because you mentioned that you didn't want to take your prosthetic off. 
in front of people. I did, you know, I've done a little bit of research here. You were in ESPN's The Body magazine where 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 you did, I mean, you were I took more than just my leg off. <laughs> it was more than your leg. You took you took off more than your leg. Yes. Exactly. How how did you get from one point to the other and and what's the message that you're sending in being in that magazine? Yeah, that so that happened. The ESPN bodies issue happened right before London 2012. It was right before, or right after. I forgot. And in that time, I kind of was in a different place with my body, but still not in love with my body. And when I had this opportunity, um, I actually said, "Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so at all." And then it was the rowing community. We were like, "You should really take some time before you say no to think about what." you could potentially the power you have to do this and also bring awareness to rowing. That's a very small sport in the US. And then I was thinking and thinking and realized that I hate, like I wasn't loving what I saw in the mirror, but I wasn't loving what my reflection because society told me I'm different and to not love different. And that made me kind of clicked a little bit I wanted to show people that beauty comes in and strength comes in so many different shapes and sizes. And it was honestly like, just like starting rowing, it was a therapy and an outlet. Doing the whole process of the ESPN body shoot was the same thing. It was rediscovering your body and appreciating it and seeing it in such a powerful way, as opposed to an ugly way that I used to perceive it in. And I didn't want a little girl or boy to look in the mirror and hate themselves based on someone else's opinion, not their genuine opinion of what they see and feel and think and know what they're possible to do. So that kind of motivated me. Do you have a framed picture of nope. that in your house? You don't. Nope. Nope. No, like medals and pictures of myself. Like it's just, I get very uncomfortable by that stuff. I'm, mm -mm. I think my mom had a heart attack and now she had time when she first saw the picture. It was beautiful, but as a mom, you kind of have a heart attack, like, oh my gosh, what did you just do? What is my daughter doing? <laughs> yeah, but then she saw more of a deeper message that it drove. And the ESPN bodies issue, it's to celebrate athletes. A lot of times, like, especially as a female athlete, you're not, you're seen as like bulky or too muscular and not pretty. And it's, you put in hours and hours and hours. I've seen pictures of you in a racing chair, like incredible. Like people need to celebrate it because it's hours of dedication and you need to celebrate it instead of trying to hide it. And also try to try to switch a little bit of that perception of what is beautiful that it's the functionality that you put so much work into it and the functionality of what you do. Was it liberating to be on the, on the set? I mean, you've got, you know, you, this, this is one of the, one of the scary things, isn't it? Like, okay. So the photographer here, there's a makeup person. We've got a lighting guy. Oh, there were 30 people and the first shot was out against the water and the boat. And I'm supposed to hold this boat looking back. And they're like, okay, whenever you're ready, just drop your robe. And there are lights and people right in front of me. And I'm like, okay, I'm dropping the robe right here. Like, holy cow, this is happening. But they're so professional that the first part, 
oh my gosh, I look, I probably was sweating every single pore of my body. I was so nervous. But then next thing you know, like I, I forgot I was naked and it was just, they're so professional. I felt so comfortable and they're not looking at it in any other way except art and celebrating something and, sh and trying to like show. I mean, ESPN is all about sports and they want to like celebrate that with you and your achievement, like your work that you are putting in that your body is just the a result of something of it. So is, is that is that what you find attractive as well? I know that that Aaron, your your boyfriend, is is a successful athlete as well, but I also I saw an episode about or a, a spot on you about getting your high heels, and there was a mention of Johnny Depp in there. So I don't know if it, can you can you reconcile the two, or how does that how does that work? What's attractive for you? Uh, personalities. I well Johnny Depp, but like so when I I loved. Captain Jack Sparrow's personality. So I don't know if it was literally Johnny Depp. I was just so in love with his like sense of humor and little like the, his demeanor and things. And for Aaron, he's a good looking guy. I'm not gonna lie. He's got a great beard, but it's his personality that it was so embarrassing. Somebody was like, so what makes Aaron a good training partner? And I was like, he's just so good. And I said, looking. And they were totally thought I was going to say, so strong. He's so good at motivating me. But instead, I was like, he's so good looking. I'm like, wow, Oksana, you just said this. Like, that's what you think of in a training partner. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not like, it's, it's just um, appearance, physical things. That's not, there's, you know, you, you age it's erasable like it's just a it's i don't know it's just like an appearance thing it's the personality that makes that i'm attracted to and it's the personality that makes you attractive to the world and it, it doesn't have to be an attractive way like you think like a supermodel but it's just like when you're confident and happy you give off this aura of life and love for life that people are gravitate to and that's what beauty is. It's not an appearance. You've said that your experiences have made you more powerful and that you take that as an advantage going into your competition, right? That mm -hmm. What you've done in the past, what, what do you mean by that? How, how do they make you more powerful? If I, if I think about it in ways from like my personal experiences from like Ukraine and growing up and the frustrations of my amputations and just all the things that are just out of your control that so easy to just live in that negativity and instead for me i've channeled all my negativity into i don't know an invisible layer of muscle that is just like a force that i just like release when i'm training and release when i'm racing and I think that is something we truly don't know how powerful we are and how, what we're capable of. And it's like all those small little things that you maybe don't realize that like make you this incredible person and is just learning how to harness it and use it in a positive way for something good as opposed to harming yourself in any way and not living your life to the fullest potential. Is that confidence for you or what is, what is confidence? I think Aaron would probably say, I'm like, so not confident. Every single race I start, everything, I'm just like, so like fear. Like, I'm just not, <laughs> I'm learning to be confident. But you have a mantra though, too, right? That you say as you start a race? 
Well, I, yeah, so I, every time I'm on the start line, I say like, I breathe in and say, I am, breathe out and strong. So I am strong. Because when I first got into sports and someone found out I wanted to do adapted rowing, they looked at my body size and determined that like, it's an unrealistic goal for me that I'm never, I'm not a strong enough athlete. I don't have the ideal athlete body. And it made me angry that somebody was just thinking, I might be small, yeah, but it's finding like, you know, your, your talents and learning how to harness them in ways that maybe isn't the ideal way you're used to seeing an athlete being strong. Um, so yeah, I tell myself that like, I am strong because it kind of affirmation a little bit too of like, you're telling yourself like you are strong, you are capable of being here along these incredible athletes and you can rumble with the best of them. I watched you in the, at the world championships in the sprint, the 1.1 K Nordic sprint. And you know what? I don't know that I'd ever watched a sprint before. So tell me <laughs> if I'm wrong in this, but it looks like there's, for, for those who don't understand, there is a factored system. So there are a variety of different classes of athletes who are all racing together. And the intention is to, is to create a factored system that levels the playing field effectively. So those who, are, who have a greater disability will have a slight time advantage. Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't realize that effectively what happens is that you were starting last. Like everybody's on the course and then it's your turn to go. Do you like that? Is that what you do well is, is just having the carrot out there, just people to go and chase or what do you do? Well, what's what, what, what goes through your mind? I like both. I love being the rabbit being chased and I love like having that carrot in front of to chase as well. It's something it was such a transition for me from rowing. I'm so used to having your own lane and you just put your head down and hammer. You cannot do that in skiing. You have to be aware of you're responsible for your own time and when to start. And yeah. And sometimes you're sitting there 40 seconds later, you go and you're like, Oh my gosh, they're halfway done with the course. How the heck am I supposed to catch them? But um, it's just, I, I love chasing people down. And for me, I like to kind of take one person at a time and just like, okay, got this person, this next person, next person. And I, I don't know if I prefer that. I love sprints. I think I'm a sprinter by heart in general, especially being a rower. I came from doing one kilometer sprint in rowing. So that's about a four minute race, which is about what that, uh, sprint was that you were talking about was about four minutes but the transition was in the long distance stuff that was not cute that was not cute no it's I I am with you I'm a sprinter by nature as well and the long distance stuff is always the stuff that I that I so wanted to do well and actually I watched a video of you with with Aaron and with Daniel Romanchuk where you, it was just a training day and then yeah. there was one other hand cyclist, and I don't remember who it was, but oh, probably Brian. Is that what it was? Okay, it was it was so cool. I mean, it was so cool to watch all you guys just sort of trading the trading the lead, and I assume it was in Illinois, mm -hmm. kind of had that that cornfield kind of look. Yeah. But, yeah. but everybody was just was just absolutely flying, and it, is that is that the hope 
to get better at the longer distance or is the hope just to just to continue to do what you do well um well i've actually transitioned so i love sprints but i've also learned to embrace the long distance and so now my two favorite events in skiing are the sprint and the 15 kilometer long distance cross-country races so i love them both and have learned you have to learn yourself and how to sustain that uh, same effort. But yeah, that's the goal, especially um, that's something very unique here in Illinois. I actually do all my training by myself. I don't have that person to chase because I do it in the bike and they, they're in racing chairs. So there's a point where because I have gears, I'm gonna be able to go longer and hard, faster than they are. But it's really fun to learn from other athletes and how they maintain their speed and for the long distance, considering they're all marathoners and are that's sort of long race to do. It's it's a really long race. You said that as an athlete, people had told you that you were too small, that you didn't have the right body type. What do you do in your regular life when you think you're too small? I mean, this isn't literally, this is more figuratively, but what do you how, how do you make your way through that? I just, I kind of the same way, I guess you would in sports is just prove them wrong, prove them wrong by action and by doing it, whether it's, I think it's sometimes just like more to yourself. And I sometimes doubt myself and see myself that I'm maybe not strong enough, but I know I am, but it's just that little tiny little bit. And in some ways, like, it's that little, I guess, like the little bad guy on your shoulder and the little good guy here that you're like, stop talking today. You're so spicy. <laughs> like, and I'm going to choose to listen to this side. And that's what you do is it's, you, you have the control of who, where you feed your thoughts and your energy to. And so if you feed them to all the positive stuff, instead of, okay, someone thinks I'm small, I might think I'm small. Well, I'm going to focus on the good things right now and then take what I can and work on what might be a negative and make it strong. So it becomes a positive and becomes a strength of mine. And it seems like you're successful in that. Do you feel like you're successful or do you feel like you're, you're a work in progress? I mean, we're all works in progress. Yeah. Right? But. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm honestly a work in progress and I think I'm always going to be a work in progress. That's the beauty of us, of humans being human is, you fail. You're not going to succeed at everything. You're not going to nail everything the first time. And when you do nail something, you're still going to potentially maybe mess it up in the future, but you could have the opportunity to do it all over again and do it better or the right way, the right way and push yourself. And I think, yeah, that's like, I love that part. It's not about the winning. It's just, creating new finish lines and just making like new opportunities and just achieving those and taking them off. Now, Aaron at one point called you out on, you guys were, were making coffee and you were, you were doing the foam, like doing, uh, so was this for, for the Paralympics? Was this NBC for the Paralympics? Where, <laughs> where you were doing the foam and creating, creating all the little images within the foam. And I'll tell you are, yeah. And all that stuff. And I think the coffee art, exactly. I, I didn't know the coffee art was a thing, but now that you say it, it makes perfect sense. And, and he at the end said, I don't like to lose, but she really hates to lose. Do you think that's true? Yes. And what does it mean? 
You know, so it's not losing. Like for me, we are so competitive, but Aaron is so mentally just like, he's like, okay, well, you know, just wasn't today. And I'm just like, no, I like latch on to it and will dissect myself apart in every single way. And will then like try and focus on that. And honestly, like that motivates me and just fuels that fire. And it's more of, I think, not losing and coming in last place. It's just, I like, I think it's a combination from like being the way I was wired from coming from the orphanage if you weren't cute enough, if you weren't funny enough or smile, whatever it is, like people weren't gonna pick you. And so you want to do it the perfect way. You want it to nail it and not let yourself down. And I think for me, it's, I set this goal. And when I, I don't achieve it, a goal that I set, I get so mad at myself. And it's not mad at the failure or the fact that I'm in the position that I ended up in. It's just mad at myself because I knew where I went wrong and I wanted to fix it and I want to fix it right now. <laughs> and I don't want to wait another year for this race. Right back and go fix it and, and make it happen. Yeah. Really. Do you think that that, does, and I'd imagine, but do you think that that really helps you as an athlete to be able to be, to be objective, I guess, in some ways? I mean, there's a bit of an emotional part of it but to be objective about, about your performance and say, this is where I was good and this is where I wasn't. Because it's hard for a lot of us, right? We take yeah. it personally. Like, don't tell me that I'm wrong, you know? And, but it sounds like you have that ability to be objective. Do you think that that's one of your, you know, one of your strengths? I honestly think it's one of my strengths, but I think it's also my weakness as an athlete as well. Um, and I think sometimes it drives my coaches crazy, especially my Nordic coaches, where they sometimes want to focus on like the positive thing. And I'm just like, dissect me apart. I want to know what I did wrong so I can fix it. I want to, in that moment, I don't care. Um, and I think I just partially, again, like I came from a negative environment. And so I focus on the bad sometimes, which is, or what you did wrong in that race. But they're the things that for me somehow just stand out with a sore thumb and I want to fix it. Especially when you know, <laughs> you know, and you're like, as an athlete, like, I don't know, have you ever felt that in one of your races when you're like, oh my God, why did I take that line? That was so bad. And you just want oh, yeah. to do it instantly. All the time. But, but given that, that you want to break yourself down to, down to nothing and rebuild after every race, how do you maintain the strength to be able to say in the beginning that I am strong? How do you, how do you have that belief the next time after you feel like you've just broken yourself down? I think it's like that internal battle. Like it's that fine line of breaking yourself down and knowing what you did wrong. But in that moment, you know what to do and how to fix it. Or I wish I did this. And so then I go and put that wish into motion in my training. And I picture that exact wrong thing I did and try and perfect it in my training. So that way it doesn't happen in the race. Both physically and visually your training. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, so in Rio it's, oh my gosh. Like, I mean, I, I got fourth and fifth and I will never remember or forget where in a road race and I was just watching one two three and I'm just like ah just so mad at myself 
And granted, like I had to put things in perspective. I don't have nearly the same amount of time that I've put in that that my competitors put in in that sport and stuff. But I knew exactly what I wish I didn't do and knew what to do and to the as much as I could for being a newbie in that sport. And that's what I do now when I'm out by myself for like my long rides is I picture that and I let myself feel that emotion and that frustration because then it motivates me to not want to do that and not have that happen again. And I think it's, it's that fine line of a healthy dose of reflecting back on your mistakes, but then knowing how to fix it. And you're focusing mentally on the fix and not the wrong, if that makes sense. Exactly. The time is a big challenge for you, right? Because you're a cross-country skier and biathlete now, no longer rowing because of that effectively hurt your back. And so you moved into hand cycling. So you're yeah. both a winter and a summer sport athlete. Tokyo 2020 became Tokyo 2021. And so that will be in September of 2021. And then 2022, March of 2022, you're going to compete in cross-country skiing in Beijing. So that's six months between Paralympic Games, right? So how do, how do you juggle the training? Do you, feel, do you feel more prepared coming out of cycling into skiing, from skiing into cycling, or do you not feel prepared in either of them? So how do you, how do you juggle the time and, and, and when do you feel prepared? How does that work? A lot of coffee. And no, I do not feel prepared every time. I think it's one of the most humbling experiences as an athlete when you're able to um, do both winter and summer. You just, I will come off from a very successful, good season of Nordic and then we'll get back into the bike. And I feel like I've never worked out in a day in my life. It is just such an opposite motion. And then you start to question and you're like, I'm so weak. Oh my gosh, I'm out of shape, blah, blah, blah. When you literally just like maybe want, a, and you had a good race, like in a season of good training, but it is such a shock. It's like taking like the contrast showers, like the ice showers where you go hot, cold, hot, cold for recovery. Oh my gosh, it's just like that. But you're right for Tokyo 2021 and Beijing 2022. Literally the six months is from the last day of Tokyo closing ceremonies to the opening ceremonies of Beijing. So realistically, it's not the full six months to train. You really will have about five, four months because traveling and races and between all that. Um, yeah, I, I would be totally lying to you if I said that I'm not panicking or having anxiety over it, but I'm also so excited too. It's a challenge. I'm motivated for Tokyo because I have unfinished business that I know I can take care of. I just need to be smart about it now that that window is so short. This is going from fourth and fifth to being on the podium, the unfinished business. Yeah. I'm just fine. Like I would, I would love to make it to Tokyo. That's step number one. And I would love to be on the podium. 
I don't like realistically deep down. I'm like, of course I want to be in the middle of a podium. I want the shiniest metal, but like, I just want to get on the podium. Like, I don't, I don't care where, and I want to get in the podium in both of my events and to kind of prove to myself that, and a lot of times like prove to my teammates and the cycling community that I am a cyclist. Sometimes being a four sport athlete and going from sport to sport you get it's like you, people see you in both ways like oh my gosh you're incredible and then they're like oh but you're not really a cyclist you're just hopping around and i want to prove to myself and i want to prove to the cycling community but also because it's a short window i have to be realistic and i am human <laughs> my body is human i am accident i'm prone to accidents and breaking body parts <laughs> that for me, regardless of what happens, I'm going to do everything I can. But what I'm really motivated and passionate about is bringing awareness to my sports of cross-country skiing and cycling because they're so underrepresented in the U.S. It's so heavily track and field and swimming. And just like I want to just that is motivating me more for when I start to panic of this is impossible time to do this. in. how do you bring awareness to your sports, how, how, did, how is that achieved? Do you have a plan for that? Well, being successful helps for sure, because <laughs> then people will see, but I think like, I'm so lucky that I have, sports has allowed me to have a platform through social media now. And also I'm so lucky that I have sponsors that support me that allow me to share my story. And through that, they see the sports that I'm doing and talking about them, like talking with you and just, um, you know, it's really exciting because the Nordic season, the season we're going to have so many um, development athletes and they're so young and they saw like, so the visibility of the Paralympics is getting better and better and better through local coverage and stuff, but also through all the Paralympians before us, but also now the current generation of Paralympians and the power of social media and sharing their stories and their good and their bad sides of every experience they go through because that generation after us their success curve for everything's going to be so much faster and that's so cool and that's the best thing you can do as an athlete are, are you comfortable with that sometimes there's the conflict between what is your job is your job to train and compete or is your job to tell the story yeah and you, you're on social media and, and please tell people how they can follow you on social media because you do a great job on social media. Oh, thank you. Um, I'm just doing what I love and I'm sharing it. Like this is the world we live in. It's such a digitalized world now. Everything, everyone is so connected. And instead of focusing on all the negativity that people can spread, I want to focus on all the positivity, especially when you know, realistically, society doesn't see some Paralympians like us sometimes as like athletes. And I want to prove that. I want to show that the how you train, the hours that you go with, the behind the scenes, take them on with your journey so they can see and the next generation gets to see. And it's not, I've never felt a conflict between telling the story and being an athlete because I think it just comes natural. I'm just, I'm just, natural in a sense, I'm just doing what I love. And we have these tools to be able to share that now because we are so connected within social media. You mentioned 
that you have sponsors that are allowing you to do what you need to do right now, which is, which is, and, and giving you a platform to, to affect a change as well. But you've gone through, I mean, we talked about going from the orphanage to coming to the U S and opening a new world. But as an athlete, you've done something similar as well. I mean, the sponsors weren't always there, right? So what was your progression as an athlete? I think I remember one example. I don't know if we're thinking about the same thing, but uh, <laughs> of what you had to do to sacrifice for your sport early on. Well, so like, well, there's two things. As a rower, it's a very small sport. We're, it's not under the US Paralympic umbrella at that time when I was training in London for London. And I actually tried to make the 2008 Beijing games but because I was too small, someone thought I couldn't make it. So I didn't make that team and proved them wrong the next <laughs> four years later. But yeah, and I had to, my mom supported me so much, but I funded myself through credit cards. So like as an 18 year old, you're opening up all these credit cards and maxing them out and going into massive debt, going into collections, not knowing. And at this time, yeah, I had zero sponsors there's no reward for like really not reward but like as olympic athletes they get financial compensation for medals and stuff and at that time london in 2000 bronze was not nearly worth what it is now that the us opc has changed their name and they've made equal pay for olympic and paralympic medals i was in debt and then going to sochi my, I, my mom helped me so much. I made the choice to drive out to Winter Park and chase snow because I did not want to embarrass myself and wanted to be as ready as I could for the limited amount of time I had. And she, my mom helped me so much. I couldn't ask her for any more help financially. And the, right before the week before we left for Sochi, I was living, sleeping in my car because I misjudged the rent. I thought I had enough and slept in my car and found out if you just roll a ball of spinach tight enough you chew really slow you can get full on just that and that's what what i did which was great i lost a lot of weight which probably is what helped me be so light and get that metal in sochi you gotta see that silver lining somehow but and during that there's a teammate that was trying cross country for the first time too and they had massive sponsors and I saw how that burden was just not on them. They weren't living in their car. They had support. And then they were able to do achieve a medal as well. And it was, that was a huge eye-opener for me because I had no idea a Paralympic athlete ha could have sponsors. And that, that actually is reality until that experience. And then honestly, after Sochi, that transition, um, from Rio and everything, it was adaptive spirit is what, there's an event that we, as a winter athlete, because I think a lot of people don't realize about um, winter sports compared to summer sports is the budget is so much smaller. There's there not as much sports and they're just a smaller games in general because of the amount of sports. But the support and they're more expensive to do those sports though because chasing snow and the wax and everything that goes into it and the support of through adaptive spirit where 
you get to apply for the financial help and they, it's all donations based and um, they will split that between the snowboarders, alpine skiers and cross country skiers and biathletes. And that helped make that transition because then I could try, I would be able to apply it into my equipment and not have to worry about that. And next thing you know, I have in 2017, a really good world championships for skiing and Pyeongchang is around the corner. And all of a sudden I have sponsors and more support. And it was, it was exciting and terrifying. Cause now I'm like, Oh my God, I don't want to let these people down. Then it became like this, like different battle. This is your team and, and to adaptive spirit is a, is a fundraising event that has been going on for years with for decades, really, uh, with the ad adaptive ski team, ski and snowboard team, and no excuses is is the foundation, is the part that actually pays to the athlete. Yeah. To help with the no excuses unlimited is the part that's paying to get you equipment and and which is which is great. I mean, it's it's one of those things that it can be so cost prohibitive to yeah. get your equipment to get your training to to fly Be on the trails because like on a bike you don't have to pay to ride on the road but for skiing you need to pay for the grooming and the maintenance of all that like there's so many things that like people don't think about i have to ask you about the elbow though what happened this is this is three weeks before pyeongchang mm -hmm. before we about to leave. and you were training up in bozeman yep so what happened? How did, how did, honestly, Chris, like, I'm still not over this. I'm still like, have not let this go. And Aaron keeps telling me, he's like, you just gotta let this go. You just gotta learn to let it go. And I'm like, no. Um, so the leading into all that was the season before of 2018 heading into the games. I literally won every single event. And it was, what was different about this games is I believed I could get a gold medal. The other games I wanted to, and I was, it's very different. And this was believing. And then, um, yes, three weeks right before the games, I'm walking and I slip on ice and I fall. And oh my gosh, like I fall all the time. I'm a klutz. I know not to stick your hand out to catch yourself like this, but I did anyways. And when I did, what happened is I did dislocate my elbow, ripped through the ligaments. And in the process of doing that, I fractured multiple spots in my bones and my radius. radius? I'm not a good anatomy person because of the structure. So my birth defects are not just my legs. I, my legs are deformed. The anatomy of the way my arms are formed are also not normal. In Ukraine, I um, had an accident where this whole side of the body, the bone, like they broke until they didn't heal together. But long story short, yes, my, <laughs> I dislocated it and fractured my elbow, went to different doctors. Eileen Carey took me to, I called her instantly. I couldn't pick up my hand. I had to like move it. And it was just completely an out of body experience. And the first doctors we go to in Bozeman say that, that yeah it's dislocated you're kind of sol like this is impossible you're not going to be able to do this in three weeks at all this takes months and we went out to the stedman clinic in vale colorado which has a partnership with the usopc 
And I'm so lucky they got me in. And that was the first time that a doctor is like, okay, you want to do six events on a dislocated fractured elbow right now. All right, well, you have to do this, this, and this tonight and moving forward. Hold on, hold on, let's back up too. So you're gonna do six events just using your arms. So this is double polling the whole time. So this is half of your ability to propel yourself. And yeah, and I should mention that I, because of when I ski, I can't grip the poles. So I have to tape my hands. And because of that, I ski very different. I'm not able to utilize the strongest, best efficient technique. So I've adapted my stroke. My stroke is very straight arms kind of thing and needed to kind of like bend it though for the climbs because so or because Pyeongchang was a hilly course. And so I needed to get that motion going in. Um, Yes, using my body and also biathlon, where you have to get down into position and put weight on. And this is my trigger hand that I also do this to. So where you shoot for. So your trigger hand. And the other thing is, is that you actually can't feel the trigger with your hand. Is that right? Yeah. So I have like my hands are, um, I don't have any muscles in my fingers and I don't, the sensation's not there. So I basically, when I shoot, I just think about contracting my forearm and do it that way. And it's very like, just definitely biathlon is a love-hate relationship because I love it, but I hate it at the same time because I know I'm working against things that my competitors are not. All they're working against is the heart rate, the physiological thing, and the wind elements that every athlete does. But but no one has to take their poles to their hands and they can feel their hands minus when they get cold but that's just an element of snow right brutal i mean brutal because there's i mean just when your heart is thumping along things happen like you move your finger without even thinking about moving your finger happens all the time i could get into position i thought my hand was not on there but because i can't feel it and it was apparently on the trigger and so then you have a flyer and you start and like awesome great one miss already <laughs> um but you have to like switch in um, but I didn't know I was going to be able to start any of the races in Pyeongchang either until two days right before the race. We still, it was still unknown. And had you been able to train or anything? You hadn't trained at all during this time, I'm assuming, right? No, I lost, oh my God, I lost three weeks of fitness. I, so two days right before we left for um, the games, I got on snow and it was very easy just to see if I could be able to like with like hold myself and do something on snow with the poles and um what and then what i was able to do a little bit as on the skier is i got on a skier and used one hand i did not use this hand. i was just using one hand and just try and do a little bit of something to try and do it but it was nowhere near the same and it was three weeks of lost fitness this is three weeks as an endurance athlete biggest event Yes, that you're peaking. You're, this is when you peak and you start to like do those like speed work and everything else. And What was the pain like? I, I actually got to Korea a little bit a day earlier into the village and I had, they put um, some cortisone shots in to help with the pain, but that did not erase the pain. It was just, I, I'm sure you know what bone pain feels like when it's like rubbing bone on bone and it hurts and 
um, there was a couple little fragments of the bone that were just floating around that I was going to have to eventually get rid of. What hurt the most was halfway through the games in the biathlon race. I fall on the backside of the course and land to this side and do everything all over again. And it comes out again and got it. I was able to get it in and I have this brace in after that event that I don't like, I don't know if I've ever felt pain. The only time I felt pain this bad was my second amputation and the epidural shifted and I came out of the operating room and the wrong leg was numb. So I felt everything on that one. That's kind of what it felt like, to be honest. I mean, that's that kind of pain where you just you just feel like you're going to be nauseous, like you're you're, you're going to be sick. Like, okay, so this, <laughs> so and, and cross country for those people who don't do cross country, it's painful anyway. I mean, you watch people come across the finish line in cross country, and and they're they're in this spasmatic convulsions afterwards, like trying to get oxygen in. But it's I mean, it's like, pain. That's the good pain, exactly. This is not good pain. In the sprint, in the 1.1K sprint, what happened? Was this the first race or was this in the middle or where was it? So this was the day after I re-injure my elbow halfway through the games. And I literally, Eileen Carey is, I fall, but I am a firm believer in finishing what you start. So I was literally just, I was already in dead last place. I was not able to shoot well because I like, it was just so hurting and I was just focusing. It was impossible to ignore that pain. And, um, Eileen was basically had people around the, around the course that were saying like, just get her off. There's a race tomorrow. We need to get her off. Like, don't just put yourself into the ground where you can't finish potentially. And then that's when they found out as I actually ended up falling, re-injuring it, it coming, it came back out again and went and got x-rays done. And they, they basically then, I had this brace on, they did this insane tape job at SportsMed, which locked my elbow like this. And I ski with my arms straight, not this, because my wrists aren't able to have that flexion. And at first they were like, I don't think you can, I think this is it, your games are over, this is what it is. And then I was like, I'm doing the sprint is my favorite event. I already lost the crowd, not lost, but I got, I think bronze in the long distance, which was my other favorite event. And I'm like, I'm gonna do this. And that's what they did. They taped me back up in this insane, like every day I had to go and get taped up. And um, the craziest thing happened. I on the start line and I win my qualifier. I win the heats. I'm ranked number one going into the final. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I can potentially medal. Like I can get another medal. I wasn't even thinking for gold. I wanted gold, but it was more about just fighting for the chance to be on the start line, not, not fighting for gold anymore at that point. Oh my gosh. Like I literally, um, like you said, like in the sprints, all the other lower classes start. And then the 12s, because I'm the most able person as a sit skier, we start chasing everybody down. And I <laughs> start to panic because I'm fast off the line, but I'm not able to sustain it. Somebody else, a couple of the Russians beat me off. And I'm like, okay, just race your race, race your race. There's this hill coming, take them down in this hill, on this uphill coming. And that's exactly what I did. It was just wait, save it all for that uphill. Next thing you know, 
at the top of this uphill, I'm first going in to the stadium finish. And I, <laughs> I get my first gold medal the day that I was just right after the day that I was just told to, I can't race anymore. Now in watching it, there also, as you were approaching the finish line, it looked like there was almost a little bobble yeah. right before you got to the finish. Like, like it was like, okay, okay, I, I've done it. And you were probably five yards from the finish, maybe not even 10 feet, maybe something like that from the finish line. It looked like there was that moment of like, okay, this is good. Oh, I could have fallen right there. Yeah. And then had all these people pass me within did, was it was that me just just perceiving something that wasn't there or was that no it, that, that was there that was straight up there that was all there um I, I wanted to stop because the pain was just hurting so bad and I just wanted to stop and didn't, got a little confused where the finish line was and realized it was a little farther and that was the longest straightaway of my life <laughs> it was that finish and I'm like why is this coming I felt like it's getting farther and farther away and I could have lost it right there and then definitely because they were not that far behind me no there were four of you in that in that straightaway that were there and one of your one of your teammates kendall was was in for the medals as well in that one i believe well so in that race she didn't qualify for the final oh she didn't okay that was yeah. a different race that but the men's you uh you might think of andy and dan where they that was were... a crazy race yes <laughs> Oh my gosh. And that was amazing to watch for Andy because I witnessed all the hours and he literally practiced for this. He practiced to wait. It's so easy to react off the person that's in the lead. And he came from behind and just like every athlete, what you dream of doing and the patience and the self-discipline, he executed perfectly. And knowing where that fast snow was. Just by inches. It was, it was absolutely amazing. So, which this is, that's got to be the stuff that fuels you though too, right? As you're looking forward, the stuff that you've been able to do, the stuff that your friends have been able to do. It's, so you, you've had such an amazing career so far. What are you expecting moving forward or what do you what do you want it to look like what are the what's the dream for you well my dream is to own a coffee shop <laughs> that's like my all-time dream but um and travel the world in a little camper and just keep riding and skiing every single part of the u.s that i can that would be the best dream um but i i my dream is to finish the my Paralympic career at a home games, whether that's in LA or whether it's a Nordic event that makes it to Utah somewhere. Uh, but we're fingers crossed on the yes. Utah thing. I know me too. I'm like, cause it's an amazing, we do our training there a lot at soldier hollow. We'll go and ski those trails and it's so inspiring and motivating to like have that come back and be there and finish it. So yeah, that's my dream is as an athlete and my athletic career. But then I also want to somehow be involved with sports still and for helping bring the awareness and help grow the awareness of those um, smaller sports within the U.S. Because, I, yeah, I have a gut feeling like Utah's going to get it. And then in L.A. 2028, it'd be amazing if the U.S. just dominates and whether I'm there as a spectator supporting all, everyone or there on the start line, I, my life's just going to have sports in it still. 
which is so cool. Thank you so much for taking the time out. You've had a crazy busy week already with, with training, with other, other media uh, responsibilities, and you've made time for us. So I really appreciate it. This is something that, that I know near and dear to your heart is, is adaptive spirit and no excuses and helping to support the athletes and give them the platform to be able to go forward and, and represent themselves and their friends and their family and their communities and their country and, 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 and also just demonstrate, you know, just kind of blow people's minds, which you've done so well. So, and that's what the coolest thing is too, is to be able to, after that, like for those athletes to come back and whether it's like myself included too, but one of the coolest parts and something that I think uh, as an athlete, when you are able to get to that next level and you are successful is sometimes it's hard to thank the people, your team behind you, but the adaptive spirit of no excuses and the no excuses event happens yearly. It's a fundraising event that happens yearly. And that is one of my favorite parts as an athlete is to be able to go to that event. It's an Alpine. I can't wait when it's, we start adding some biathlon and cross country events to it. Cause it's an Alpine race. You athletes race with snowboard and skiing with the donors and the sponsors who are helping these athletes, helping us, helping me. And that is something I definitely, when I'm on the podium and I know every other athlete, when they get there, they're thinking about that and they're there with them and they own it just as much. And it takes a village and definitely would not be able to do it without the support of no excuses and adaptive spirit event, for sure. And, and the thing is too, it wouldn't mean as much either, right? No, like it's one thing knowing someone supporting you but it's another thing sitting down, getting to know people, getting to know and shake hands and speak and see the faces and have them hold your World Cup overall globe or your medal because they're part of it. They're, they, they own it. And that is what it's all, for me, that's what makes me happy is when you get to share that because I'm not the sole owner of that. It's the people that supported me that are. It's the people who supported you. And it sounds like also for you, it is the people who are following behind you as well. Yeah, absolutely. The, the team behind the team, it takes a village, a lot of, especially as a Paralympian, way more moving parts from the people that are carrying your equipment out to the snow and handing you your rifle and dialing in your bike. It's, it's a huge village of support. Uh. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time out and good luck. Good luck in those six months between Tokyo and Beijing. I mean, that's going to be amazing and crazy and fun. And, and I look forward to, I, I luckily will be able to watch you from, from, from the U S but I'll be able to watch you and talk about it. Hopefully uh, some of it as you're, as you're going along. So thank you so much for being a part of what we're doing and being such a great voice for not only the athletes, but also for all of us as, as human beings, because no matter who we are, we're dealing, we're dealing with something and, and to be able to remember in that moment that, hey, I am strong, I am strong. It might not feel it at the moment, but I need to remind myself. And so you're a tremendous reminder for all I of us. I definitely believe that there's nothing that the human spirit and body can't overcome. If you let yourself to have an open mind and let your body instinctively do what it wants to do in your mind, 
there's nothing you can overcome. So thank you. Train hard. We'll look forward to following you and people will hopefully follow you on social media and get to watch you because you're pretty good at keeping people up to date on a daily basis. So thank you. Bye. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care.